Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to All Music Movies, a part of the All Music Podcast series and a companion podcast to All Music Books Deep Dive. Here, we explore music films and documentaries rather than books, and there are so many great ones, old and new. In fact, these days, there seems to be a new music film or documentary every week, so we're very excited to explore this area. I'm your host, Steve J. so grab your popcorn, sit back and relax, enjoy the show. Let's talk music documentaries and films. Today we're speaking with Drew Stone, the director of All Ages, the Boston Hardcore film, and the New York Hardcore Chronicles film. He's also the lead singer for New York Hardcore band Antidote New York Hardcore. Welcome, Drew. Hey, thank you for having me. Very glad to have you. We've known each other a long time, and you have a very unique background to be able to tell the stories of your two films. Can you give our listeners the dime version of your relationship with Boston and New York City? Sure. I was born and raised in New York City. I come from a filmmaking family. My dad was a filmmaker, film director. So I grew up in and around the film business. As a young person uh, and as a teenager, I did some modeling and I always had a passion for acting. Did a lot of theater camp and stuff like that and, and some modeling and I ended up getting into Emerson College in Boston to study acting. So at 18 years old, I packed my duffel bag and found myself up in Boston. And that was 1981. I didn't really know a lot about Boston before I showed up there. I don't recall ever being up there before. I mean, I, I mean, we went, of course, and visited the school. But basically, you know, I was uh, up for an adventure uh, and I ended up at Emerson to study acting because music to me up until that point was very, uh, it, you know, I was into rock music, but you know, the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead and the Allman Brothers and a lot of what you call like classic rock bands. But when I got up to Emerson right away, probably the first couple of days, I was introduced to somebody in the cafeteria uh, who had their head shaved and I was really intrigued. And I talked to him and he told me he was into this thing called hardcore and I was inquisitive and what do you mean hardcore? Like what? Like, like Blondie or the B-52s or like, I, I didn't really have a reference point for it. And uh, he said, oh, ever hear of a band called Black Flag? And I said, like the bug spray? You know, like I had no idea. And what he said was, hey, there's a show going on this weekend. Instead of me trying to explain this thing, why don't you just come along and we'll go check it out? 
And, and I agreed to do that. And that, that weekend came a couple of days later and, and we traveled and into a neighborhood in Boston, into some, you know, uh, art space on the fifth floor of, of, of a building on Boylston Street to a place called the Media Workshop. And I saw my first hardcore show there. It was kids my age. And I jumped right in and, and you know, it was a lot of fun. People like slam dancing around and dancing around. It was a very small crowd. It was like 20, 25 kids. And afterwards, the, the, the guitar player took his guitar off and, and, and approached me. And um, what are you doing here? Who are you? It was a new face. It was a new, fresh face. I talked to him and I fell in with, uh, with this crew and this crowd and, uh, you know, buckled myself in and, and uh, turned out to be a really incredible, special, exhilarating time in music. Yeah, I had never heard of the hardcore music scene, and I, like you, went to school in Boston in, in those same years. And your first film, the, the Boston One All Ages, captures the music scene from those years, from 81 to 84. And I remember the All Ages hardcore shows at the channel especially, maybe The Rat. But in your movie, I learned of a place called Gallery East that I had never heard of. Can you tell us about that venue? Sure. When we first started out doing this hardcore thing, there weren't really venues for us. The majority of us were underage, couldn't drink, and you know, clubs weren't interested in that. So we were left to our own means, and we would look for venues that would host our kind of you know, do-it-yourself shows. We were always looking for a VFW hall or a, some kind of a space we can rent. And Gallery East was a space in, I think, South Boston, down by the train station there in the old leather district, I guess it was called. And Gallery East was an art space. And we could rent the space, I think it was like for 25 bucks. And we would go and we'd get this sort of, I remember we would, you, you go get this like permit, which cost like 15 bucks. And we would throw our own shows. We would make our own flyers. Uh, we built our own little stage. And we booked our own bands. We, we set into motion this sort of DIY ethic. Uh, we did it all ourselves, and we created this, uh, this uh, scene. You interview a lot of really interesting people in both films, but for the Boston one, one of your interviewers said, quote, what was unique about hardcore is that it was like Charlie Brown. There were no adults. I love this quote. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, well, like I said, we, we were all teenagers. And to put it in perspective... At the time, it was unprecedented. There was no reference point to it. It didn't exist. It was a youth movement created by youth, and that's what kept it moving forward. So there wasn't a lot of adults around. You know, there, there, were, there were no adults. I don't remember any adults around. It was all teenage kids. You know, who's in charge here? You know, you are. A big part of it was the DIY ethos. And I say it actually in the Boston Hardcore film is, you know, one thing I took away from that, one of the things or the biggest thing, even as an adult these days, it's something I live by is, you know, get up, get out and make it happen. And you can do it. And don't wait for a handout. You know, I'm an independent filmmaker now, and I don't sit around and wait for someone to hand me anything or give me a break. I go out and I make it happen. Yeah, that's words to the wise, no matter what your musical tastes are. Another person in your film noted that hardcore was when kids from the suburbs burned their Kiss albums. <laughs> Another great quote. Yeah. Was the Boston scene largely suburban? The Boston thing was interesting in so much that Boston's a big college town. 
So you have many colleges, you know, not, not just Emerson, you have BU and you have what Northeastern, right? And, and MIT and Tufts and Harvard and blah, 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 blah. You have a lot, a lot of colleges in Boston. And then you have a lot of these kids that live in the suburbs that are sort of like townies, you know, they're not there going to school. They're, they're suburban kids. And there's a lot of suburbs outlying the Boston area. So yeah, there was, there was a lot of suburban kids that, that were a part of that Boston scene for sure. So it was an interesting mix uh, that I think in that regard was somewhat unique. So Boston had a scene, LA had a scene, and of course, New York City had a scene, mm-hmm. but they all carried, and I'm quoting here, the stink of testosterone. Why was this scene so primarily male? Initially, it was more of an all-inclusive scene. It was, it was for everybody. It, it was really inspired people to start bands. But if you didn't go out and start a band, then perhaps you took photographs or you started a fanzine or you booked shows. And it was open to everyone, including, of course, girls. And there was a lot of gals that started fanzines and started taking pictures and even started bands. So early on, it was a very inclusive level playing field. But let's be frank, hardcore punk music is incredibly aggressive style of music. And I think eventually, as it played out, it got a a little bit more aggressive, eventually became pretty violent. And that's that's sort of filtered out a, a lot of people. And, you know, you had a bunch of guys with their shirts off, slam dancing and jumping around and, you know, carrying on and... I guess that's kind of where it came from. I mean, my personal take on it is hardcore music for the most part is always pretty much been a male dominated sport. That said, there are incredible exceptions to this. Well, I did notice in the uh, New York hardcore film, a much more diverse crowd than the Boston scene, or at least from your movie. Yeah, there were people of color in hardcore bands. There were women in hardcore bands, you know, in both cities as violent as the pits look, the slam dancing that you mentioned, some of the women that you interviewed, they said they had no fear of getting hurt. Was there a code? Yeah, early on, absolutely there was. I mean, nobody was out to hurt anybody, per se. And when a foreigner came into our midst with the intention of hurting somebody, you know, they usually got dealt with. Early on, girls were, you know, in, the, in what we call the pit, you know, slam dancing and guys and Uh, Like I said, it was a very, a very even playing field. And there was always a code. It was, you know, you're not, no one's out there to hurt anybody. If somebody falls down, you help pick them up. If somebody jumps off the stage, you try to catch them. I could speak primarily into the early American hardcore punk scene. I'm still a part of it. You know, what we're talking about here is, is the early scene because eventually what happened is, like I said, it became way more aggressive. It became really intense and people would just kind of stay out of the action, so to speak. It's an interesting dichotomy because as a teenager, and I'll keep it in the eye, as a teenager, you know, I was in there and, and flailing about, you know, I'm a young guy that's in shape. It was, it's like a rugby scrum, you know what I mean? I, and, you know, and as I got older, you know, I wasn't really up to get into, another, into a scrum. You, you could get hurt. And I did a bunch of times. You had to have. I, I saw that footage and it made me a little fearful. Yeah. In speaking with a code, certainly the band members of those bands, your bands, were fans, obviously. 
in almost every live clip in your movie, fans are on the stage, they're piling on the lead singer, and then they just jump off. And as you mentioned, they're caught by people in the crowd. And that was part of the show. Oh, yeah, for sure. Everybody early on kind of had their own personal style. People got known for their personal dance style or, hey, let's see what this guy has. What do you have? It's really like show and tell. Art like this or a, a culture like this, it's cyclical in nature. The wave goes in and the wave goes out. To me, there came a point where I realized, okay, I, I get it. This is San Francisco 1966, the summer of love. This is, you know, insert big music scene moment here. London 77 or something. I get it. This is a special time. This is a magical time. I, I, I actually was coherent of that at, at the moment. That's why I tried to document a lot of stuff. But the wave goes in and the wave goes out. As a young person, I was right in the middle of it. It was incredibly vibrant. And then, you know, I, I, I took to other things. And then it comes back in again with a whole new generation of kids. They bring their flavor to the mix, so to speak. And I've seen this happen with this musical genre about five or six times already. Yeah, and it's amazing to think your first movie was almost 40 years ago on the scene. And that's, you know, that is a, yeah. a, a long time for that to evolve. The Boston hardcore film that I did really takes place between 1980 and 1984. Really, those years are what I consider the golden age of American hardcore and, you know, the first wave. And that's the story of, you know, the Boston hardcore film I did. You're listening to All Music Books Deep Dive, part of All Music Podcasts and Pantheon Media. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Drew Stone. He's the director of a couple of documentaries on the hardcore music scene. One is called All Ages, the Boston Hardcore Movie, and the other is the New York Hardcore Chronicles film. Let's talk a little bit about the difference between the two cities. Was there any difference in the music or the musical approach or the live presentation between the scenes in the two cities? Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Boston scene, the Boston hardcore scene, in a certain way, it was a little more fine-tuned. Let's just say there was a sort of like a leader or a lead band that everyone rallied behind. 
the scene wasn't as big as in New York. There was a little bit more focus to it. Whereas in New York, it was very scattered. Punk music really came out of New York. So the hardcore thing came up out of the ashes of the, uh, of the punk movement in New York. There was a lot of like sort of been there, done that feeling in New York City. But New York didn't have that sort of sense of unity that Boston had. You had kids coming in from Jersey. You had kids coming in from Queens. You had a Long Island bunch. So there was a lot of different contingents of people and the music reflected that. Yeah, and you mentioned all those areas that the kids came in from and it, it was probably fair to say a more urban scene than Boston, but some of the folks in your New York movie, they talk about abandoned car lots and they'd sleep in these areas that had yet to be gentrified. Yeah, for sure. You know, no windows, no doors, and that's where they lived. Very different than Boston, for sure. Because like I said, Boston, big college town and people coming from the suburbs. New York, you had the Lower East Side, which is where all this stuff was happening, which was a lot of kids that came from you know, real challenged backgrounds. A lot of kids ended up living in like squats. The streets of New York, very different than the streets of Boston. And also, you know, a lot of drugs in the New York scene. Tell us about the A7 Club. A7 was a venue on Avenue A and 7th Street that nowadays it's known as, you know, the birthplace of New York hardcore. It was formerly... Uh, in the 40s and 50s, it was Mary's Candy Store. Candy stores back then sort of had the front room and it had a back room that had like pinball machines and stuff like that where people would hang out. Mary's Candy Store closed when the Lower East Side really sort of began its decline. It was taken over at a certain point by this guy, Dave, and he turned it into an after-hours club, like, like a speakeasy, pretty much. And keep in mind, this is when New York's Lower East Side was like downtown Beirut. It was an extremely dangerous, drug-ridden place. You know, we used to say, you know, Avenue, you know, you had Avenue A, you know, A was adventurous, Avenue B was beware, C was crazy, Avenue D was D was for dead. Oh. You know, like we never, we never went east, but the A7 Club would open up at about midnight. There was no way to even know what was going on in there. There wasn't any windows. You had to go to the side door, you know, and then you go inside and there was an illegal bar in there. And what was the back room where they used to have the pinball machines now was this very small room where bands would play. And, you know, maybe you could get in, 50 kids could pack in there. It was open to everybody. And it was a breeding ground for a lot of bands. And it gave... A lot of bands, including the band that I was in at the time, The High and the Mighty, you know, we were an A7 band. You know, you would go down there, you go to the calendar, put your band name on the calendar, along with, you know, a bunch of other bands, and you, you could play there. That's how you booked it. This was the incubator for a lot of bands that came out of the New York hardcore scene. And it's a treasured venue. It's still there. It's, it's a different thing now, but... Recently, I was promoting shows in there. We were doing some hardcore shows, and the magic is still there. Mm. It, we call it the magic room. Like, I go in there, and the feeling, the, the energy is palpable. It is incredible. 
I noticed uh, it's interesting because there's that DIY thing popping up again, you know, and, and sure. there's someone in your film and, and you seem to echo this that said part of the scene was changing the world in a very small local endeavor. And there was a mission of change. And then somebody else, I think it was a member of the band Sick of It All, said that dysfunction also had a lot to do with shaping early hardcore. So those are yeah, two absolutely. interesting but kind of opposite ideas. <laughs> yeah. Well, dysfunction... Well, like I said, dysfunction had a lot to do with it because you had a lot of kids from broken homes and a lot of kids from challenged backgrounds that really found a sense of belonging and a semblance of family with this hardcore scene. But like I alluded to before, you could insert Summer of Love, 1966 here, uh, Jazz Explode. You know, so that's something that I've explored with my films. You know, this is in a certain regard, it's not that unique, a social movement like this. And like those earlier scenes, they had a very distinct visual flair. And as an art director and a designer, one of my favorite parts of the movie is when Kevin Crowley, the man behind the iconic New York hardcore logo, tells his story. That was just amazing. Yeah, that was cool. You know, I remember Kevin, he sang for the abused. You know, after the High and the Mighty, I joined Antidote in 1984. I saw the abused play at the A7 and a couple other places, but when I was making the New York Hardcore Chronicles film, which is in segments. And I want to do a segment on what is the origin of the New York Hardcore symbol, because the New York Hardcore symbol has become iconic and everyone has co-opted it to their own city or to their, their team or whatever. Where did it come from? And I always knew that Kevin was the originator who, who first drew it. And I tracked him down and we got him on camera and what was incredible was that he still has the original sketches. He has the original piece of paper where he first sketched it out. That's great history right there. It was awesome. And he told a good story, too, and, and told about the creative process that he did. And as a creative, I just found it fascinating. Yeah, it was cool. You know, the, the marketing images and the posters and flyers, they had a very distinct look that, you know, as we had mentioned, born out of punk rock. But interestingly, the New York scene would also incorporate graffiti, which was exploding out of the hip hop scene at that time as well. Yeah, well, interestingly enough, there was a time when New York hardcore and hip hop and graffiti were all basically underground movements in New York in the 80s, these were all running neck and neck. And there was a lot of cross-pollination you know, between all of them. Definitely. And I guess the bad brains are the, uh, the whole epic you know, combination of all of that stuff. They're from D.C., I think, right? Yeah, originally the bad brains were from D.C. They moved up to New York. But the bad brains were really incredible. And thankfully, I got to see them in their heyday, so to speak. They were a really, really, really special band. And I've seen a lot of bands and I've worked with a lot of bands through the years. Of course, I went on to a career doing music videos and I've been around music my whole adult life. But the Bad Brains, and they were very proficient musicians, which was somewhat unique at the time. Mm. You know, they weren't just kids that were trying to figure out their instruments, which is a lot of early hardcore was that. The Bad Brains had a big jazz influence and they could really play their instruments. So musically they had did this combination between incredible searing hardcore punk and then they would do a reggae song right. it was like going to church it was really incredible and the only thing that i could compare it to in my experience were a couple of nights that i saw the grateful dead when they were really on 
you know, that sort of thing, just really almost a spiritual uh, experience. I'm happy to say this is probably one of the few podcasts which loops bad brains, the Grateful Dead, all into one magic pie there. Well, I have to say that before I went up to Boston and got into the hardcore thing, as a very young teenager, I followed the Grateful Dead around the country. You know, I loved the Grateful Dead. And I was a part of like that community. So when I went up to college and I fell in with the hardcore thing and became a part of that community, I realized how different they were, but how incredibly similar they were. Interesting. Just real quick, you know, when I got into hardcore, I shaved my head and I went to a Grateful Dead show and people saw me and said, oh, wow, you know, what are you into now? Like, you know, you shaved your head and you're into this punk thing. What happened to the Drew Stone we used to know? Came back, my hardcore friends would see me and say, wow, you were at a Grateful Dead concert? Wow, you know, what happened to the Drew Stone we used to know? So for me personally, I had a moment where I just realized, you know what, I'm not gonna please everybody. What's important is that I do what feels right and what's important for myself. I learned a lot in that moment and it, it was about, following my vision and creating the art that resonates for me. Well, let's talk about that for just a moment here in our wrap up. You're the lead singer of Antidote NYHC. You have two films out on the hardcore scene, which we just discussed. You also have a TV miniseries and a very successful podcast called the NYHC New York Hardcore Chronicles Live. Mm-hmm. Hardcore clearly isn't dead. What, what is the status of the scene today? Hey, the wave goes in and the wave goes out, baby, right? <laughs> you know, that, that's really what it is. Art is cyclical in nature. And it's incredible. And I've been blessed to see and experience all this. And I, I consider myself in a certain way, I'm, I'm like the Alan Lomax of the hardcore scene. <laughs> you know, it's to me, a long time ago, I realized this is important stuff and this should be documented. And I wish I did it more as a young person. I've seen many different generations get into this thing. And each generation brings in new elements to it. I saw heavy metal come in with it. I saw rock. I saw different things get sprinkled in the mix. So, you know, it comes in, it comes out, it has low points, it has high points. But hardcore in a lot of ways, to me, it's a portal for a lot of musicians and a lot of artists that they go through that enables them to have a career in music and in the arts. There's a lot of people, you know, that that came through this thing we call hardcore to uh, very illustrious careers, whether it's, you know, Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses was in a hardcore band. You know, Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters in Nirvana played drums in Scream, which was a hardcore band that I played with many times. So hardcore really, in, in its basic essence and in a lot of ways, it's a portal that people come through, it sifts them out, it filters them out. And for some people, you know, they, they go on to uh, an incredible career. Well, you also directed a wonderful film called Who the Bleep Is That Guy? And it's on a legendary A&R man. And maybe we can have you back to talk about that film at some point. I'd love to do that. But you also have another fascinating new music film coming out. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Who the, who the F is that guy? It's the fabulous journey of Michael Lago. Michael Lago was a... A&R person who has an incredible story, it's an incredible New York story of a guy against all odds and his incredible love for music. Uh, he got an A&R job and the first band he signed at Elektra Records at 21 years old was a band called Metallica, you know, thus changing the face of modern music. 
And, you know, the Alago story is incredible. That film really put me out there in the forefront. The hardcore films are great, uh, but the Alago film was on Netflix for a couple of years and uh, really put me out there as a director. And as a result of that, I, you know, I want to do something a little different. I uh, have a film coming out pretty soon called The Jews and the Blues. And like I said earlier, you know, the, the background that, that I, I came from before hardcore, I just have a love for Americana. I love the blues. And at some point I was connected with someone and got hip to the fact that there's like some blues players in the Middle East. And I was really intrigued by that. So the Jews and the Blues is really the musical journey, which by the end of the film becomes a musical and spiritual journey. Well, it looks fascinating. And I'd love to have you on for that as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Drew Stone. I think all of your films are available on Amazon Prime. I'm not sure where else they are. Yeah, you can see them on Amazon Prime. You could just uh, search under Drew Stone. They come up. The Alago film is in between distributors right now. It should be back online for people to see pretty soon. But I just want to thank everybody that has supported me through the years and enabled me to live my life, um, live my dream, really, as an independent filmmaker. And if you have the time, please check out my show. Uh, it streams on YouTube and on Facebook. It's called The New York Hardcore Chronicles Live. Well, you're a very interesting uh, artist yourself, and uh, we wish you well. I uh, hope to have you back soon. Thank you, Drew Stone. Absolutely. Thank you very much. All Music Movies is part of the All Music Podcast series and a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.